Reinhard Bunke said, before you can ever hear the word go, you must first have heard the word come. I think that that's the reason why we're here, is to remember that come to me is before going to all the world. And you can only go into all the world if you have first come to him. It's important also to recognize that the Great Commission was spoken to the ears from his lips. They heard it themselves from his living person. In his presence, out of his mouth, they hear, go into all the world. And so it is with us. We can read it, but it's something different when you're in his presence and he says it to you. Go into all the world. You've heard. You've seen. Remember John talks in 1 John, him who we've looked at, we've touched, we've seen, you know, his personal experience. He says, we proclaim to you so that you too may have the same thing that we have. In other words, it must come forth from personal experience. And that's what we're here to do is to lay upon him, to lay upon his chest and gain access to to the divine treasure chest. I remember Fuchsia Pickett came to Brownsville when we were there in 99. And she said, she asked God, why did John lay his head on your chest and no one else did? And she said that the Lord spoke to her clearly and said he's the only one that wanted to. And to quote Robert Murray McShane, if you learn to lean upon his chest, John's seat will always be open for you at the table of the Lord. Laying your head upon his chest is simply the choice of saying, yes, I want to, I want that kind of intimacy. I want to be that close with you. I desire this. I remember Ravenhill once said, you have as much of God as you want. You have as much of God as you want. I think he got that from the old story of two young college students that went to go see an old spiritual sage. They get to his door. They knock on the door and the sage opens the door, this spiritual man who walks with God. And they say, please invite us in, sit us down and tell us how we can know God like you know God. And the old sage looked at them and he said the very words. He says, you have as much of God as you want. And he shuts the door in their faces. <laughs> they turned around, they started walking back thinking how rude the old sage was. And the more they talked about it, the more they realized he gave them everything they came there for. The recognition of the fact that you have as much of God as you desire. So this brings me to a point in my life, I don't know where it brings you, but it brings me to recognize how vile and wicked I am. It makes me see how stone cold and heartless I am. And I have a great need for Christ. But I have a great Christ for my need. And I can come and throw myself at his mercy and say, help me, help me, Lord. I was with Todd recently, White, and you guys know he's been going through so much, almost died, everything. He says to me, I said, what's your prayer life look like these days? He goes, I throw my eyes up and I say, help me, Lord, help me. 
I said, what a beautiful place to be, broken before the Lord. Help me, God, I need you. Oh, this is the key and this is the secret. If we can stay needy, as the scripture tells us that we can approach the throne of grace with boldness for help or aid in the time of need. The key and the secret is that if you stay needy, you don't have to leave. <laughs> Just staying low, Lord, I need you so bad, God. I think the problem with us and myself, I'll say first, is that I get proud of my spiritual attainments. I get confident in myself. I, I put, I put a, uh, a leaning upon my track record and I find grace starts to just leak out. Grace starts to just become not that empowerment to me that I need it to be because I'm distanced from Because, man, God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. The humble say, it doesn't matter what I've accomplished. It means nothing before an almighty God. The, the, the proud will say, Check out what I've done. I keep in mind what I've done. The humble say everything starts all over every single day as if nothing before ever happened. I remember C.S. Lewis once wrote that the Christian life is, man, a thousand, yay, 10,000 re-enchantments with Christ. Just being re-enchanted with Christ. Capture my heart again today, Lord. I need you so bad. So can we say that today together? Can we honestly just recognize our depravity, our inability, our numbness? And can we just say with all our hearts, oh, how I need you, Lord. I need you as the first day. Just put your hand on your heart and say this with me. Say, oh, Lord, I realize that I deeply need you. Just as the first day. Come and save me. In your precious name. Amen. Turn to Song of Solomon chapter 2. Again, we're going to continue right there. How many recognize that the relationship that John had with Jesus is very unique? Anybody? Does he kind of stand out amongst the rest to you? Is, do you read his writings and say, where in the world did this man come from? Do you ever read his writings and say he speaks with a language like nobody else? Do you see John to be somebody who the Lord favors? As a matter of fact, he is known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. You notice that he had this unique relationship. It stems from direct contact with God. His laying upon him. Remember what Peter says to him when he wants to know something? Hey, ask him. And it's interesting that he thought John had access to revelation that he didn't. I'm not saying Peter's, Peter's bad. He's not bad. He's great. You know, we love Peter, but there is a uniqueness to John. And I believe it is connected to laying upon, uh, laying upon the Lord. In Song of Solomon, chapter two, 
We read yesterday, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, the first thing was that she recognizes that he's more important. He stands out amongst everybody else. He is supreme to her. You notice? The first thing in prayer is, Lord, you are more important than all the people in all the world. Finn alone once wrote, once a man has found God, there's nothing he can find in any creature. Tozer even echoed that in a, in a different way. And he said, when a man finds God, he's not looking for anything because he's found it. Praise God. Shakespeare said, journeys end in lovers meeting. What does that mean? It means you find the one that you love. There's nothing else you're looking for. I got everything right here. And so it is with the soul that finds Christ. He above all. This is the first thing of prayer that Jesus must occupy the chief place. I remember I, I read a statement from Andrew Murray and I thought to myself, this is worth a whole semester in Bible college. He said, he said, everything depends upon God occupying the chief place in our attention. Everything depends. This means your worship depends, your reading of the scripture depends, your friendships depend, your preaching of the gospel depends. Everything depends upon God occupying the chief place in our attention. And that's what we see here. Like an apple tree among these trees of the forest, so is my beloved. He takes the chief place in her attention. Number one. Number two, she calls him her beloved, meaning not only does he take chief place above everybody, but he he takes the chief place in my heart. I love him, my beloved, the one that I love. Beloved means the one that's loved. So number one, it's yes, you take preeminent place, but you're also preeminent to my heart. I love you the most, Lord. I put you above every other love. And then we see the next thing is that she goes into his shade. Remember, she goes underneath into his shade. This is submission. And there she finds great delight. I think I spoke to you guys yesterday about oftentimes we sabotage our enjoyment of the Lord because we want to stay king. We want to stay in control. We want to stay the one who makes the decisions. We want to be the manager. This sabotages the enjoyment of the Lord because the enjoyment of the Lord is in the shadow and the shadow can only be entered under. This is submission. And this, this is where the great delight happens and where the sitting down takes place, that great place of rest we saw, as we said in Mary, Yesterday, she just sits and adores the Lord, watching, looking, staring, fixed. Oh, a transfixed gaze. Praise God. May I live with a transfixed gaze. And be like David, who no matter who seeks his life, he says things such as this. But my soul delights in your words. <laughs> he, he seems to not deny that there's problems happening but he does go out of his way to tell you that doesn't take my attention. You do, Lord. I think this is so important, a preoccupation, if you will. I'm preoccupied. My attention is so given to him, I don't have it to give to you. Things come, money comes, situations come, people speak, and all these things are trying to ask you to give to them your attention. And you turn and say, I'm sorry, I have no attention to give to you. It's all gone already. This is preoccupation. A.W. Tozer said the Christian life should be an endless preoccupation with God himself. Preoccupied with God. So we see it says here that she sits down and then his fruit is sweet to her taste. We have satisfaction. She eats and vibes, tastes, and has. she receives on the inside of her the nutrients of God. This is what happens 
in prayer, we taste him. And it's simultaneously sweetness and satisfaction. It is the sweetness that is satisfaction and the satisfaction is sweet. This is communion with God. But look at what it says next. And he brought me to his banqueting hall and his banner over me is love. Sustain me with raisin cakes. Refresh me with these apples. Because I am sick with love, I am lovesick. I love that Shakespeare did not come up with the word lovesick. It was written far before him. And it was written by men moved upon by the Holy Ghost. When speaking of God and the church, Christ and his bride, lovesick. Let's come up with a word that shows them the affectionate infection. A feeling so deep, a love that is so overtaking as it is defined in the Urban Dictionary. To be lovesick is to be so in love one is unable to act normally. Isn't that what Jesus told us about love? He said, if you love me, you will obey me. In other words, he's saying, if you love me, you'll no longer be able to be the way that you were. (laughs) You're going to be a little bit different now when you love me. He ties so many things to love. He says, if you love me, I'll make my abode. We'll make our abode in you. It's almost as if love is the passageway through which God makes you his home. The continuous dwelling in God's presence is united with love. Jesus actually says, abide in my love. Showing that it's your affectionate connection to him that is connected to your constant consciousness of his presence. Oh, to love you and love you and love you and love you. So we see here she's sustained by him in this sweet secret place. We wonder why people fall off. We wonder, I mean, I don't know about you, but in the last two years, I've probably seen more people fall away, more ministers fall away than in the last 10 years. Have you guys seen that? What sustains a man is the shadow, the divine shadow. What sustains a man is satisfaction. Man, satisfaction is not a side issue. Satisfaction is the very means by which God frees you. And empowers you to be able to obey him. Satisfaction is so important because it shuts off all the other vacuums of the soul. The vacuum for needing people to like you. The vacuum for needing to look significant. The the vacuum of needing to look successful according to what the world defines success to be. Whatever it, it would be that we're looking for to find satisfaction. When you're satisfied with God. All these other things don't matter anymore. You're free. And when you're free, you can obey him for the right reasons. Instead of obeying him with feigned obedience, as David would call it, an obedience that is just outward. An obedience that looks at obedience as one plus one equals two, instead of, oh Jesus, I love you. If I do this, he'll do this. Let's throw that out and say, I love you. Do whatever you wish, Lord. So it's satisfaction satisfaction. It literally stops up all those other vacuums. What does the scripture say? A satiated man loathes honey. What does that mean? I mean, man, the honeys of this world, they taste sweet. But when you've been satisfied by Christ, even the things you used to love are distasteful to you. Maybe maybe you used to really love when people saw you to be the most spiritual in the room. 
Maybe you really had this like internal satisfaction, a lust for being recognized. Maybe that was there and you really felt it and you really enjoyed it when people recognize you to be the spiritual one. People all look to you to be the one to pray. And you had like this, this rise on the inside of you about it. But then once you're satisfied with Christ, that is like, ooh, I don't even like that anymore. I'm not, let the name of Whitfield perish that the cause of Christ may win, Whitfield wrote. In other words, he lost all desire to be, have a legacy. His whole heart was, I give it to Christ. Do whatever you wish, Lord. In the hand or on the shelf, Lord, I give to you myself. There's a poem by Madame Guyon. I don't know if I can remember it, but she says, if I, if I go or if I stay, if I have his presence, I'm safe either way or something like this. But it's like what she's saying is that it's all the same to go or stay. Whatever you wish, Lord. Maybe you're here and I'm not prophesying this. I'm just using this as a, as a way to emphasize a satisfaction with God himself. Maybe you're here and we've had this happen before. Something doesn't work out the way that you thought it was going to work out through boot camp. Is that going to harm your faith in God? Is that going to cause you to become disappointed in the Lord? Or do you have such a deep satisfaction underneath the divine shadow eating the apples that whether you go or you stay, it's all the same? You say, oh, it didn't, it didn't work out like I thought, but I have Christ. And that makes me happy. People are looking at you like, man, you should be really upset. Things didn't, I thought you said you were going to do this and it didn't work out. But you look at them, you have a smile on your face without one hole in your chest. And you say, I'm completely fulfilled. I'll go wherever he wants me because I'm his. Now, I believe everybody here will be thrust into the nations. I believe everybody here is going to do drastic things. I believe you will see the dead rays. It's not uncommon anymore. Blind eyes open all the time. Deaf ears open. Men bow their knees to Jesus. It will happen, period. It's going to happen. But there's this thing that Dan likes to say. I call him Dan. You guys might call him Daniel. But he says, after the crowds have gone and hundreds of thousands have been saved, he goes, I go back to my hotel room and I sit on the bed and it's still only God that satisfies my soul. So this is what we see here. She's sustained by him. How? Under his shade, in that place of sitting, in that place of receiving him as satisfaction. This is what sustains her. And look at, she's refreshed this way. It's how she keeps revived. We, we want to sometimes focus on revival, but we cannot look at revival and forget the reviver. There's only one way to live in revival, and it's to be with the reviver. And so if we want to live in revival, we live with the reviver. Revival is just the reviver in our midst. And so she finds that her reviving is him. Where? Under the shadow. How? Sitting and eating and receiving that sweetness with him, that enjoyment of him. Look at what she says next. She says, let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. There's a sickness of love that longs for direct contact with God. There's a sickness of love that says, Lord, touch me. 
I need to directly contact you. I cannot just know about you. I can't just know the definitions. I need touch. And I realize that you teach me by touch. There's a teaching that comes through touch that is unlike anything else that can come to a man. There's a learning that only comes from leaning. And so we see here, she's because she's sick with love, because she longs for him, because she's overcome with desire for him, she wants to lay upon him. I pulled a quote here from Robert Murray McShane's journals. He says, To them that are in Christ, there are some sweet glistenings of his countenance. <laughs> there are meltings of his love. A sweet song of the turtle dove when his Holy Spirit dwells in the bosom. Sweet, these glistenings of Christ's countenance. This is what we live for from, from glistening to glistening. If we live for any other thing, we'll find that it doesn't satisfy. So I pulled another one from Samuel Rutherford's uh, journals just to see that these, just trying to show you that these men valued first above all eating the apples of God in the shade, sitting down and laying upon his chest. He writes in his, remember this, is, this letter that I'm writing to you, reading to you is written from prison. So that just kind of changes the, the dynamic a bit. It's, he's not, you know, next to the fireplace in a rich home, you know, with a great cup of tea next to him. No, he's in jail. And he writes these words. Man. I have neither tongue nor pen nor heart to express the sweetness and excellencies of the love of my Jesus. Christ's honeycombs drop honey and floods of consolation upon my soul. My chains are gold. This cross of Christ is overgilled with perfume. This prison is a garden to me an orchard of delights with my beloved. I would go through burning to be with my lovely Christ. I sleep in his arms all night and my head is between his breasts. My well-beloved is truly altogether lovely. That moves me because to me, he seems like he's sick with love. His chains are gold. The prison's a garden. Who is this guy? And I move past who is this guy to what has he seen? And who did he look at? Glistening of so the countenance of Christ. Oh man, changes everything. It makes, it makes every place, any place, all places, the bosom of the Lord to lay upon. To, to, to lay upon his chest and gain access to that divine treasure chest. I pulled a quote here from Fenelon's letters. He writes, Our leisure hours are ordinarily the sweetest and most pleasant for us but we can never use them better than refreshing our spiritual strength by secret and intimate communion with God. Prayer is so necessary. It is the source of all blessings and joys that those who have discovered the treasure cannot be prevented from having recourse to it whenever they have an opportunity. 
He goes on to say and say, he says, beloved, give every spare second, second to your God. To think upon him and to enjoy him. And this is where I want to bring everything to is love strips itself of everything in order to present itself to God. Love strips itself of everything in order to present itself to God. Why? So that you can lay in his arms, be raptured in his charms. Is there not a charm in his every feature? I read Fulton Sheen, the old archbishop. You guys know Fulton Sheen? He's a great teacher. He said that there was two different hospitals that had children in it. They were both sick rooms of sick children. And when these two hospitals met up, they found out that one hospital had most of the children getting worse in their sickness. And then another hospital with the same kinds of sicknesses, all the children, pretty much every single one of them were getting better. So they, they met and said, what are you doing that we're not doing? And they found out that the hospital, that the children were not getting better, only had one nurse in the room. But the hospital, that all the children were getting better, they had a nurse for each child. And Fulton Sheen goes on to say, it's the human touch that was applied to the children that caused them to recover. I wonder if there's a sickness in the midst of the church because of lack of touch. Lack of divine touch. It's also stated uh, by Fulton Sheen that children that have a hard time learning how to walk and talk have lack of touch in their lives. While children that have lots of touch in their lives cause them to learn how to walk and talk quicker. I thought that was very interesting. Maybe that's the reason why many Christians do not have the talk and walk down. Because <laughs> there's lack of direct, loving, intimate contact with God. God longs to touch you intimately, repeatedly, consistently. Love exchange with him. Oh, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For his love is better than wine. The kiss is the direct contact of God's love by his spirit to the human soul. Oh, this kiss can cure your evil and bring you to his bliss and give you him for whom you sigh. Jesus, your sweetness, Richard Raleigh wrote. It's the kisses of God. Man, he kisses away competition. He kisses away comparison. He kisses away condemnation. His kiss is your call and his kiss is your cure. When was your last kiss, I say? It's the kisses of God. Praise God. I remember Kathy Walters had, I don't know how you guys feel about this kind of thing, but I've seen it with my own eyes. She had gold just start manifesting all over her while she was talking. And her whole face is caked with gold, her hands, her, her shirt, everything. Well, she didn't have any at the beginning, but as she continued talking, gold just was appearing. We were watching it. It was pretty insane. But somebody went up to her afterward and they said, how do you get the gold to manifest on your, how do you get the, that to happen? She says, you have to relax and enjoy Jesus. Then she goes to turn away and then she turns around and she goes, oh, you, you better understand grace. She goes, they're just kisses of God. I thought that was beautiful and it reminds me 
that it is the kisses of God. He plants kisses on your soul like seeds, the bloom and blossom of which is the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, it's the kisses of God. I've said it many times in something that hit me really hard, that God, he touches us, and it's amazing. The public touch, though, must turn into a private kiss. It must, we must go away and find the sweet, intimate, loving contact with God. See, I was lost before his kiss, and now I'm lost without his kisses. And I think that this is the dependency that we need. We need to lay upon him. And to enjoy him. This is the lovesick life. Lovesickness is unable to enjoy anything apart from him. I'd just rather not, Lord. You know, many people love to, to sing, I love, I love, I love your presence. But you can tell how much somebody really loves his presence by how uncomfortable they are when they're not aware of his presence. I wonder if God would bring each one of us into a greater desire to live underneath the conscious presence of God and the sweet kisses that come from the bridegroom. I wonder if God would make a shift in each one of us and bring us into a greater experiential love with him. I wonder if even today, as we sit before the Lord in silence, I wonder if the Lord would be allowed in just a little bit deeper. There's a, there's a man of God in England that I met, he li- actually, he's in, uh, what's it called, uh, Shaftesbury. And I go to his church. I used to go to his church every year until COVID. And he's a man of God. And I looked at him one day and I said, I said, uh, uh, Clary, what, what is the Lord been saying to you? And he starts crying. He's an old man. And I'm like, what is he going to say? And he looks at me and he says, God's been telling me, don't withhold your affection from me. <laughs> you know what that makes me think of? Withhold your affection from me? Makes me think of when Mary is washing Jesus' feet in Simon's house. And Simon is persecuting Mary. And Jesus looks at Simon. And he says, I came into your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She washes my feet with her tears. I came into your house, Simon. You didn't even greet me with a kiss. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet since she came in. He compares the two. One was distanced. The other one came low. (laughs) I wonder which one won the, the heart of the Lord that day. I tell you, it probably wasn't Simon. It was this woman who said, you are more valuable to me than what people think of me. You're more valuable to me than what other people are doing. I will, I will take you as who you are. It's interesting to me that Mary is the one that actually put oil on Jesus just before he died. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, she anointed me for my burial. It's interesting because none of the disciples ever washed his feet, only her. Jesus washed their feet. Interesting, Jesus washed their feet after she washed his and they watched it and said, this is weird. So Jesus says, okay, you thought her love for me was of a demonstration that was weird? Let me do that to you. There's this love that we see in Mary that gave her a revelation of something that even though Jesus told the disciples, they still couldn't get it. They didn't realize he was going to die. They couldn't get it. 
But she knew. That's why she anointed him with oil. Praise God. I wonder if there's a reason why God took this woman and said that wherever the gospel goes, what this woman has done will be a testimony to her. In other words, I want this woman and what she's done to be remembered forever, connected with the gospel spread. Maybe in it, he found a love and a value in her that he wishes the gospel to bring everybody to. So today, why don't we, why don't we do this? Why don't we join Mary at the feet of Jesus and empty ourselves, strip ourselves of all the things that we want from him, all the things we need from him, all the things we have to do today. Why don't we strip ourselves of the stuff that we think about ourselves or other people here or what we want to be? Why don't we strip ourselves of all of these things and lay down at the feet of Jesus and worship him and say, you alone are worthy, Lord. I will give to you all my worship. I'll give you all my praise. You alone, I long to worship.